0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from AntiWar.com. This is AntiWar News for Friday, May 19th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of AntiWar.com today. The U.S. is preparing for the Ukraine war to become a frozen conflict. So the Biden administration is preparing for the war in Ukraine to turn into a frozen conflict for years or possibly even decades similar to the situation on the Korean Peninsula. This is according to a report from Politico. So U.S. officials have been discussing the possibility, including potential options for where to draw the lines for a frozen conflict that either side would agree not to cross. The report said that the idea of freezing the fighting could be a politically palatable long-term result for the U.S. and its allies. The administration is considering the possibility because they don't expect Ukraine to regain much territory in its long-awaited counteroffensive. According to Politico, the U.S. is expecting that the assault will not deal a mortal blow to Russia. A U.S. official said that the administration is preparing to support Ukraine for the long term, whether the conflict is frozen or not, and that long-term support would involve continuing to arm Ukraine and trying to make the country's military more interoperable with NATO. Some NATO members are looking to upgrade Ukraine's status within the alliance, and the U.S. and NATO members in Western Europe, they're reluctant to give Kiev a concrete path to membership, but some new guarantees are expected in the future. So this is all part of the plan. Freeze the conflict and really turn Ukraine into even more of a NATO bulwark on Russia's border. According to Politico, new guarantees for Ukraine could range from a NATO-style Article 5 mutual defense deal to an Israel-style arms deal with, with Ukraine as a deterrent against Russia. U.S. officials said that at a minimum... Uh, NATO would ensure Ukraine's weapons are compatible with the alliance and they would conduct a joint training with Ukrainian troops. So because one of Russia's main motives for invading Ukraine was its alignment with NATO and Russia's main demand during short-lived negotiations in the early days of the war was Ukrainian neutrality. That means that a frozen conflict that involves NATO, you know, increasing this support for Ukraine is not going to be acceptable. Is likely not going to be acceptable to Moscow. And while Russian officials have expressed an openness to negotiations recently, open to the proposals from these other countries, you know the Kremlin has also said a lot lately that they believe Russia's goals can only be achieved through military means. And I think plans like this uh, just give them more motivation to to keep the war going. And it looks like I think you know they've really dug in. Because since Putin mobilized those 300,000 fresh troops in the fall, you know a lot of people expected a big Russian offensive in the winter, but it never really came. They focused to the fighting on Bakhmut and just kind of building up, I think, the defenses along the battle lines to really just dig in. I think the Russians are preparing to be fighting for years and years and I just can't see, at least anytime soon, maybe this will be the inevitability, some sort of frozen conflict, but I can't see Russia going for that anytime soon. And it's just such a shame because, you know, just if Ukraine, you know, fulfilled the Minsk Accords before the war, or if the U.S. and its allies, you know, let Ukraine and Russia negotiate a deal in the early days of the war, um, you know, this this whole thing could have been avoided. And now, if they freeze the conflict along the current battle lines, Ukraine is going to lose significantly more territory than if they negotiated earlier. But as we know, the peace talks were discouraged by the U.S. and its allies. And the Biden administration, they still show no interest in pushing for a real diplomatic solution. Now they're preparing for a frozen conflict, something like, you know, the Korean Peninsula that's been, you know, for decades, uh, you know, a frozen conflict along the DMZ there. And there's um, how many U.S. troops are in uh, South Korea? I guess that would be the difference is that there wouldn't be U.S. troops in Ukraine. Um, I think there's about 28,000, I want to say, in South Korea right now. So, I mean, if that's what they're thinking for a long-term plan, uh, it just goes to show uh, that they don't think this is ever going to end. All right, the next one here, NATO to draw up Russia war plans for the first time since the Cold War. So NATO is drawing up plans on how to fight a war with Russia for the first time since the Cold War. And at the upcoming NATO summit in Vilnius this July, alliance leaders will approve thousands of pages of secret military plans that will detail how to respond to a Russian attack. And these plans will be vastly different than anything drawn up during the Cold War, as NATO has expanded from 16 members to 31 since the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. The documents will also outline how NATO members should upgrade their forces and logistics. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said, quote, Allies will know exactly what forces and capabilities are needed, including where, what, and how to deploy, end quote. So NATO's newest member, which is Finland, shares an over 800-mile border with Russia and is poised to sign a deal that will give U.S. troops access to its territory, And while the alliance is preparing to beef up its presence on its eastern flank, one NATO official acknowledged the danger of massing troops near Russia's border. So I thought this was an interesting quote. This is from a NATO uh, Lieutenant General Hubert Kotere. I probably butchered his name there. Uh, He's the vice chief of staff for NATO's supreme headquarters, allied powers in Europe. And he told this to Reuters, quote, the more troops you are massing up on the border, it's like having a hammer. At some point, you want to find a nail. If the Russians are massing troops on the border, that will make us nervous. Is if we are massing troops on the border, that will make them nervous. End quote. So at least acknowledging that expanding NATO onto Russia's border is, you know, makes the Russians nervous. Uh, you know, as much as they want to say this war was unprovoked, um, at least there's some acknowledgement there of you know we're just going down such a dangerous path here. And, you know, this is just more preparation for war with with Russia. Um, And, you know, they're saying this would be based on some sort of Russian attack. I don't think Russia has shown any indication that it wants to attack NATO, especially after all of the escalations of NATO involvement in the war in Ukraine. Um, But, you know, you never know what could happen with, uh, you know, you have these Russian and NATO aircraft uh, always encountering each other now. Uh, another missile could end up hitting Poland or something you, you just never know what could happen you know we could wake up one morning and you know it could be at war with Russia i think it is we are on that much of a of the edge here uh, you know scary stuff all right the next one here ukraine tells china that it will not cede territory for a peace deal so china's special representative for eurasian affairs lee hu was in Ukraine on Tuesday and Wednesday to discuss the prospect of peace talks. And he met with senior Ukrainian officials, including Zelensky and uh, Kuleba, who's the foreign minister. So according to the Ukrainian side, Kuleba told Lee that Ukraine will not agree to any deal that cedes territory to Russia. And what's interesting is that he said, uh, we won't lose territory and we also won't freeze the conflict. So while the U.S. is Discussing that idea, Ukraine is saying that, that that that's not something they want to do. Ukraine and Russia are extremely far apart in their demands for a settlement. Kiev wants Russia to withdraw from all the territory that it has captured since launching the invasion last year and also Crimea before talks can even happen. And Russia wants any peace deal to recognize the oblast that it has annexed as Russian territory. So it's just, you know... I think these Chinese efforts are good, but I would just be surprised if any if there's any breakthrough here. According to the Chinese Foreign Ministry, while in Ukraine, Li uh, laid out China's position. Uh, he said that there was no quick solution for the conflict and said that the warring sides must quote do their part to build up trust and create conditions for ceasefire and peace talks. End quote. Um, and the Foreign Ministry added that China, you know, is ready to do its part in facilitating peace talks. And Lee did speak with Zelensky, but neither side really revealed any details of the conversation. I didn't see Zelensky really talk about it. Um, And so he's also traveling to Russia. I'm not sure if he was headed to Russia right after. He's also supposed to go to Poland, France and Germany. Um, So not clear if he's going to go to Russia, then go to those countries or vice versa. Uh, But we'll see if, you know, any kind of progress is made here. All right, the next one here, the U.S. overvalued arms sent to Ukraine by $3 billion. So this is according to a report from Reuters. It said that the Pentagon overestimated the value of military equipment it sent to Ukraine by $3 billion. And this means the U.S. could ship even more weapons to the country. It seems like a very convenient error for the U.S., so, two unnamed Pentagon officials said that the error was assigning a higher value to weapons the U.S. has shipped to Ukraine from U.S. military stockpiles. Um, the officials said that the Pentagon, sorry, they said that the Pentagon made the value. Uh, they were assigning this value to arms. It was based on the cost that it would be to replace them, not their current value after depreciation. I don't know. Uh, Congress has been notified of the error on Thursday. Changing the value of the arms will give the Biden administration more funds to work with, and it means that the White House could delay asking Congress to authorize more funding to spend on the war. Politico reported Monday that funding to ship weapons to Ukraine could dry up by midsummer, and that the administration was preparing to ask Congress for more, but changing the value could give them more time, and these officials said that they expect this number to grow, uh, you know, they might end up uh, finding some more, you know, overvalued weapons that they ship to Ukraine. Um, so, and I guess so far, the U.S. has authorized about one hundred thirteen billion dollars to spend on the war, and I think this shows that you know they can definitely fudge the numbers, um, you know, however they want uh, to to keep this this aid going. It seems like. Um, So it's not clear now, you know, when the aid is expected to dry up. Uh, It's also we don't know for sure if this if this if that's what this means, if this means that they're going to have this extra money. I think Congress has to kind of have their say in this, but we'll see how it uh, shapes out. All right, the next one here. This is from Connor Freeman over at the Libertarian Institute. A U.S. general says that the Israeli-produced Iron Dome system is ready for deployment in Ukraine. So one of the two Israeli-manufactured Iron Dome batteries is ready to be deployed to Ukraine, and a U.S. general told the Senate this on Thursday. Israel has thus far refused to allow the anti-missile system to be provided to Ukraine for fear of provoking Russia and risking its ability to freely bomb Moscow's ally, Syria. So this uh, U.S. general made these comments while responding to a question. Again, they were just asking, can we send these um, weapons over there? And this Senator uh, King, you know, was asking because the U.S. has spent billions of dollars on developing these Iron Dome systems for Israel, and they're saying, hey, we've spent all this money on it, can't we send it over there? And because uh, the U.S. funds the, the the U.S. does fund the development of the Iron Dome, that's part of the U.S. military aid to Israel. But it's still developed in Israel, Uh, you know. So they they have to sign off on any deliveries outside of you know the U.S., I guess. So and Israel still is not willing to take that step. I know that they gave Ukraine some sort of drone detecting uh, radar thing, but they haven't really given them anything that actually fires. Uh, missiles uh, all right so the next one here the UK confirms that Ukraine has used storm shadow missiles so British defense secretary Ben Wallace confirmed on Thursday that Ukraine's Ukraine's armed forces have used the storm shadow missiles provided by London and they have a range of more than 155 miles Wallace told CNN quote all I can confirm is is it has been used successfully? That is the information I received from the Ukrainians, and I am pleased it is helping them to defend their country. End quote. The Russian Defense Ministry said on May 5th, on May 14th that Ukraine had used Storm Shadow missiles and attacks in Luhansk, in the city of Luhansk. They hit targets there. Uh, Civilian targets were hit, according to the Russian Defense Ministry, and then Russia later claimed that its forces shot down several of these storm shadow missiles, and these can be fired from Ukraine's Soviet fighter jets. They have a significantly longer range than the munitions that the U.S. has been providing Ukraine, Uh, and Wallace signaled that the U.K. would not oppose Ukraine using the storm shadows in attacks on Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014. Uh, But Ukraine and its allies do not consider uh, Crimea Russian territory. And basically, Wallace was asked, you know, uh, what do you think about Ukraine attacking Crimea? And he said, it's their right. We can't tell them, you know, it's their sovereign soil, he said. So there's definitely that risk of, you know, if they start really firing these things at Crimea, I mean, Russia might respond in a pretty big way. So that's definitely a risk. All right, so we have a nice companion piece for this story here. The next one here is from Declassified UK, and it says that a Russian neo-Nazi leader obtained British missiles in Ukraine. So Sergei Korotkik acquired anti-tank launchers from Britain despite being accused of beheading a migrant when he led a neo-Nazi group in Russia. UK-supplied weapons have reached a range of far-right forces in Ukraine. So this guy founded the National Socialist Society in Russia and he went to Ukraine in 2014 to fight for the Azov movement, uh, the Azov battalion, the neo-Nazi militia that was absorbed into Ukraine's National Guard. Um, And Declassified has traced anti-tank launchers in his arsenal back to Britain. Uh, He has been seen wearing a black sun symbol, which is originally from Nazi Germany, on his body armor. Azov veterans in Kharkiv were the first force in the besieged city to receive these British weapons. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of they had a similar story about how a former I forget if he was like former ISIS or he said he he was a fan of ISIS. And I think he also beheaded somebody and he had some uh, British weapons, too. So and so there's a lot of bad dudes getting, uh, you know, NATO weapons in Ukraine. And I bet, you know, there's a lot more than we could Possibly even know about um, this. Declassified UK does pretty good investigations into British weapons. Uh, I haven't seen many uh, like this when it comes to American weapons, you know, investigations like this. All right. So the next one here the Pentagon does not know who it killed in a Syria drone strike. So US military officials are walking back claims that a drone strike US Central Command launched on May 3rd in northwest Syria, killed a senior al-Qaeda leader after evidence emerged that a civilian was killed. So when the strike was first launched, I went over it, and it was clear that day that they killed a civilian and that they didn't kill an al-Qaeda guy because they, for a few reasons, but reports immediately emerged that the strike killed a sheep herder that had no ties to militant groups. And then the Associated Press spoke with the victim's family, family. His name is Lafti Hassan Misto, He he was 56 years old. Uh, He was a farmer, a father of 10, and he was killed by a U.S. drone strike while he was out herding his sheep. And an unnamed Pentagon official told the Washington Post, quote, we are no longer confident we killed a senior AQ official, end quote. I doubt that they were ever confident because the day that they put the press release out, they said, oh, we killed the senior Al-Qaeda leader. And that was it. They didn't give a name. They didn't give any details of the strike. Usually they have certain things that they put in their press releases, including saying that they, they don't think they killed any civilians. They usually say that. I noticed they didn't say that. So I was immediately suspicious of this drone strike. And uh, it turns out, you know, they killed somebody completely innocent. And now they're saying that they're looking into it. And they there's this other official saying that they believe the person was Al-Qaeda. Uh, th- there was this Washington Post report that was published Thursday. They spoke with people they said were terrorism experts and based on where this guy was, just based on on the the facts that they have, the evidence, what he was doing, all the people that, neighbors and family, you know, they're saying this guy wasn't Al-Qaeda. So eventually we'll probably see the Pentagon admit it. And then we might learn later that they knew it all along because, you know, it was like that uh, drone strike in Kabul in Afghanistan in 2021 that killed the whole family, 10 civilians. You know, we learned later that they knew right away that they killed civilians, but they lied about it. So the Pentagon is notorious for undercounting civilian casualties and lying about it. So if they're not kind of challenged on it, they're just going to lie. So it's good that this is getting uh, exposed more. Um, but very, you know, this has gotten very little attention. I mean, it's it, it was in the Washington Post now. So hopefully more people, uh, hear about it because you know it shows that the terror wars aren't over and u.s drone strikes are still killing innocent completely innocent people uh, all right the next one here house democrats tell biden to support ending the yemen war so uh, representatives rashida talib democrat from michigan and Ro Khanna, democrat from california they led 37 other house democrats in a letter that calls on president biden to support diplomatic progress in Yemen by declaring that the U.S. will not provide military support to the Saudi-led coalition in the conflict. So this is good to see. I mean, it's 39 members of Congress. That's a pretty good uh, amount of people sending this letter. So just the current situation, um, you know, the Saudis and the Houthis recently held talks in Sana'a, and that was a huge diplomatic breakthrough. But so far, peace deal has yet, has not yet been reached. And amid these negotiations, U.S. officials went over to Saudi Arabia and they said that they support Saudi Arabia's defense against threats from Yemen, which is basically saying, you know, if this war flares up again because there hasn't been Saudi airstrikes in Yemen or Houthi attacks in Saudi Arabia since March 2022, so for over a year, which is great. But basically it sounds like these the U.S. is saying Don't worry if things spark up again. You know, we got your back. And kind of the point of this letter is that, you know, no, you got to you got to say you're not going to support them, you know, make them sign a peace deal, force their hand. Uh, So this letter wants Biden to, quote, clearly and publicly state that the United States will not provide any further support in any form to any faction party to the conflict while diplomatic talks to end the war are ongoing and should they fail to reach a diplomatic settlement and return to armed hostilities, end quote. Um, So the letter also said that they were ready to introduce legislation to prevent further U.S. complicity in the Saudi war on Yemen if hostilities resume. And they said that they're uh, ready to introduce a war powers resolution. So that's good. A War Powers resolution was introduced last year in both the House and the Senate, and it got a lot of bipartisan support, but the White House successfully lobbied against the bill, and they convinced Bernie Sanders not to bring the legislation to the floor for a vote. He caved to the pressure. The Democrats also want a complete lifting of the blockade on Yemen, which has long been a Houthi precondition for negotiations toward a political settlement. So that would really help if they fully lifted the blockade. They have eased it, but it still hasn't been fully lifted. The letter says that Biden should, quote, clearly and publicly state that the Saudi blockade of Yemen's ports, a form of collective punishment against innocent Yemenis, must be lifted unconditionally as global international humanitarian leaders have long sought, end quote. Um, So, again, it's good to see this pressure. And you know this war is just was just such a brutal war, and it's been uh, such a relief for people there that that the fighting hasn't been going on, but the blockade is still affecting them. And if this thing does ramp up again, I mean, this again, it's just been such a brutal war. Just looking at the death toll, and this is considered to be a pretty conservative estimate from the UN as of the end of 2021, they say at least 377,000 people have been killed in the war. And more than half of those died due to starvation and disease that were caused by the blockade and the coalition's brutal bombing campaign. The U.S.-backed Saudi-UAE coalition, you know, always bombing civilian targets, always bombing water treatment plants. They would bomb farms, uh, fishing boats, power plants, you know, all sorts of civilian infrastructure. Just a brutal war on Yemen civilians. All right. Uh, the next one here, the last story in the news section, the U.S. military will access ports and airport in Papua New Guinea. So this is something uh, you know I've already covered, but this is confirming that the U.S. and Papua New Guinea are still going to sign this military deal, even though President Biden has canceled his trip to the country. They're still ready to sign it. And the prime minister is also confirming, yes, because we didn't know for sure. Is confirming that this deal will give the US military access to the country's ports and airports. So that's a big deal. Uh, this could turn into the US building bases in Papua New Guinea because it says they could p- potentially build infrastructure. So I think, uh, you know, we, it looks like the US is going to be building bases in Papua New Guinea and Finland now. So the US empire just continues to expand. And again, with Papua New Guinea and all these Pacific island nations, this is all about the preparations for a future war with China. Um, You know, that's that's what they're doing with all this. So it's uh, definitely concerning. Um, And the G7 summit started uh, on Friday in Japan. Biden went over there, so we'll probably see a lot come from that. I think some more sanctions. They're going to announce new sanctions on Russia. We might see some announcements some stuff with China and Taiwan, you know, they might say some things that'll anger China. So we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, but go check out our viewpoints. We have one from blaze Malley national security experts. Ukraine is a, is an unmitigated disaster. Um, so this was that open letter in the New York times published by the Eisenhower, uh, group. And we have one from Jonathan Cook, the Nakba at 75, Israel State Building Project is Unraveling from Within. One from uh, Natalie Baldwin about, uh, it's a book review of a uh, biography of Putin, The Good, the Bad, and the Befuddling, a review of Philip Short's Putin. One from Joseph Solis Mullen over at the Libertarian Institute, taking notes out of Rothbard's Taiwan playbook. And our spotlight is from Aaron Mate over at his Substack. Elon Musk is right. Belling Cat is a Western psyop. Um, so that's everything for today. That's it for the week. Uh, I will be back after the weekend to update you on more news. We'll talk about that G7 summit, I'm sure. Uh, but you could always help out the show just by sharing it around, liking and subscribing on YouTube or Odyssey, Rumble wherever you prefer to watch your videos. And if you listen to the podcast, leave a review, uh, something like that. All that stuff helps out a lot. Uh, But that's it. I'll be back Monday. Thanks for listening.